Our Old Testament lesson is found in Genesis chapter 17. We'll be reading the first 14 verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of the Lord. I know it's a little bit difficult to really rejoice and having to hear so much about circumcision. But that was a little weak, and I've had a head cold this week, so I may be a little fuzzy, but I need your help. So let's try it again. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. That was better. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in us there's darkness, but in your Son there is light. We confess that in us there's death, but in your Son, Jesus Christ, there is life. We confess that in us there is nothing but debt and bankruptcy, but in your son there are riches. And so we come to him this morning, and we ask that you would teach us his way and that you would instruct us in his truth. It's only in your light that we have any light. And so guide us in the way of your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1704, Alexander Selkirk was an unknown officer in the British Royal Navy. He was tasked with harassing Spanish ships along the South American coast. He was particularly working in the South Pacific region when he entered into a spat with his captain about the seaworthiness of their vessel. The vessel was being eaten from the inside out by worms, and he was afraid they were actually just going to sink. And so in a fit of rage, he said that he would rather be marooned upon an island than to continue to sail in this particular ship, and the captain made good on his request. 
He was left on this small, uninhabited island in the South Pacific. He was given a few weapons, a dagger and a musket, a Bible, a small supply of of tobacco, a little bit of food, and some rum. Now, Selkirk was fairly confident that he would be rescued within a few days. There was a great number of ships that would be passing through, and so he thought that this would not amount to much time on this uninhabited island. However, the ordeal stretched from days into weeks. Those weeks turns into months, and those months then ended up turning into years. And daily, Selkirk tells us that he searched the horizon for white sails, looking for that one ship that was going to rescue him. Day by day, going to the highest points on the island in order to search the horizon to see if a ship would arrive. A few ships appeared, but they flew under the Spanish flag. Soldiers actually came ashore and attempted to capture him. There was no rescue. No British ships returned. Through all the tedium, deprivation, loneliness, and despair, I mean, can you imagine it? He was there for four years and four months. Boredom, deprivation, no human being to talk to, the despair and discouragement. Selkirk maintained a certain vigilance and expectation of rescue. He marked his days each day on a piece of wood. That's how he knew how long he was there. And finally, four years and four months after arriving on the island, he was rescued by the British Royal Navy ship, and he was taken back and became somewhat of a celebrity in England. It's intriguing to consider his predicament in which he was daily scanning the horizon for rescue and deliverance and also dealing with the continued, the continued loss and disappointment that he encountered as ships did not arrive, as he continues to see that there's nothing there or the wrong people were there. And this all accords with the tensions of Abraham's experience. We've seen in chapter 12 of Genesis, and then once again in 13, and once again in 15, that God makes these tremendous promises to this man named Abram, who becomes Abraham in today's passage. And the promise was that he would have land. The land of Canaan would become his land and be the land of his offspring. And that they would have blessing, that they would be fruitful and multiply there. And they'd become a blessing to all the nations of the earth because they were going to have descendants that were as many as the stars in the sky and the sands upon the seashore. But in all of this, there was tension because God promised Abraham these things. But now we are 25 years on when we move from chapter 12 to chapter 17, and the promise seemed no closer to being realized. 25 years, 25 years of disappointment, 25 years for hopes to rise and fall, 25 years to doubt and ask the question, is God really reliable? Is he going to come through for me? And friends, this delineates the ongoing challenge of faith. 
It points out to us that we've received promises from God. They're the promises that were brought to fulfillment in Jesus, the ones that fulfilled all of these promises to Abraham. But yet we too are waiting on the final fulfillment of those promises, that we are awaiting something. And so we live in this gap between when the promise is given and when we will have the final fruition of all of that promise. And that gap is difficult. It places stress and pressure upon us. It challenges us. And like Abraham, this is the context of our lives. And like Abraham, we're exposed to all of our weaknesses. We've seen that Abraham was far from perfect in the midst of those pressures. He had his own collapses of faith and moments of doubt. We've seen moments of faithfulness followed by floundering. And so the question for us as we arrive at Genesis 17 is how does God relate to us in the midst of all that weakness? As we, we, as we receive promises from him, they're extraordinary and great, but yet also continue to deal with all of our own weakness and doubt and uncertainty. And there's one term that defines that answer that we find repeated over a dozen times in Genesis 17. And it's the term covenant. And this is what God does in order to address us in all of our weakness and all of our uncertainty is that he enters into a covenant with you and with me, with his people, the church. He does so with Abraham and he does so with us in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Genesis 17, it's important to appreciate the dynamics of this relationship this covenantal relationship that he enters into. And we're going to consider three aspects of that relationship this morning. First, we'll look at God's promise to us. And then we will consider God's claim upon us. And then finally, we'll close with God's sign for us. And so let's begin by looking at God's promise to us. The passage begins simply with the statement of Abraham's age. And we have gaps in the narrative. Last time we encountered Abraham, he was 87. Now he is 99. Thirteen more years have elapsed. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. It's critical for us to recognize where all of this begins that a covenantal relationship with God begins in God's initiation. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham didn't somehow figure out a way to clean himself enough, up enough and to sneak into heaven and barter out a relationship with God and set the terms. It wasn't by his own wisdom or his own ingenuity or his own accomplishments that he could work all that out. God doesn't show up because Abraham was really just that outstanding. We've seen some pretty hard truths about Abraham's life and his capacities. There's a mixed record of obedience and disobedience, faithfulness and folly. It's all there in his life, just like it's there in your life and mine. Nonetheless, God appeared to Abraham to establish a covenant with him. And friends, this is the way of religion in the Bible. 
It's not a religion about performance. It's a religion built in grace. It's the story of a God who longs to reconcile us to himself, and he does so through forgiveness. And he works with those who are humbled and brought low and to the end of themselves, seeing that they have nothing to commend from themselves to God. No way of reconciling that. And so this is where it begins in God's initiation. And then as we work through the passage in verses 4 through 8, we find the reaffirmation and the reiteration of all that God has promised to Abraham so far. That is the land of Canaan. That is that there's going to be blessing and fruitfulness and that there's going to be descendants who outnumber the stars of the sky. God changes Abraham's name in verse 5, and that was just an expansion of his name to indicate that he will indeed be the father of many nations, underscoring the original promise given in Genesis chapter 12. All the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And it's important in these verses that you consider just God's commitment to what he said he was going to do. If you follow in verse 6, note what God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And then again in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And again in verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring. And verse 8 again at the end, I will be their God. And friends, the emphasis is unmistakable that as God swears this covenant with Abraham, a covenant that he has already cut in chapter 15. But as he reaffirms that promise, he takes these responsibilities to fulfill his end and his goal. And he says, I will do this. And if you remember back to chapter 15, God has sworn on his very life that he would fulfill this. And so there's a strong ring of certainty And that, yes, we will look at the responsibilities that we have as those who are partnered with God in a covenant. But it's enormously important for us to focus here upon the inequality of these obligations in the relationship. That God takes the weight of the relationship. He takes all of it and he pledges to make it happen. I will do it. And friends, in the midst of the twists and the turns of life, the ups and the downs, the challenges that you see week in and week out and year over year, there are any number of pressures and any number of struggles that it can induce you to doubt and to uncertainty. To ask that question, is God really going to make good on his promises? And this is where we are brought to. We are brought back into this covenant, to this relationship that God has sworn. He swore to Abraham, and then he fulfills in Jesus Christ, and he swears to us in and through Jesus Christ that he will make good on all of this plan. That yes, one day publicly you will be vindicated of all your sins, not because of your own righteousness, but because of Jesus. And that yet one day, You will walk in a new world with a body redeemed that doesn't decay and grow old and tired. That one day you will inherit a world that's free from evil. A world where there's not injustice and there's not pain. A world in which there is no inequity 
and inequality. That world will be just and right, and God will dwell there. No longer will there be a veil between heaven and earth. That's the world that you're promised. But yet oftentimes when we look at our present and we consider the rigors of that, we doubt and we question, is Jesus the one who's going to bring this about? Are the meek really going to inherit the earth? Is it really the humble that get blessed? Do the last really get to be first? Because when we look at our present experience, we say, no. That's not the way it works. And friends, this is why Christians live by faith and not by sight. It's holding on to this promise. And we need to be reminded and reaffirmed of all of that promise that God has sworn that he is going to do this, that he is determined, that he's sworn against his own life and so in all the up and the down, in all of the twist and the turn, in all the difficulty and the rigor and the hard places that each of us find ourselves in at different seasons of life, we're called to trust this God who's working out this great plan to renew and to remake all things. But secondly, what God does for Abraham is he also places and what he does for us is he places his claim upon us. In calling us his own and making us part of his family, he then doesn't just leave us to ourselves, but he sets us apart for his service. And that is that we're to be a unique and distinct people marked out for this covenant relationship. In verse 1, you see what God says to Abraham when he appears I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Abraham was to be in fellowship with God. That is, a living and vitalized relationship with him, walking before him. And he was to be blameless. And typically when we hear this term blameless, we really struggle because we think that is something like being morally perfect. My Hebrew professor, Bruce Walkie, explains the meaning of this term in its original context. And he says, blameless signifies wholeness of relationship and integrity rather than no sin. Okay, so this term is not about someone who is just perfect and doesn't have to live humbly before God. That would be a contradiction, as we've seen. But rather is someone who is in a wholeness of relationship and there is an integration of their life with their beliefs. That is one that is free from gross hypocrisy. So it's not moral perfection, but one in which there is that integration between faith and our lifestyle. And friends, that has always been the hallmark of the church in the Old Testament and in the New, this integration of our faith with our life. This week I was reading Larry Hurtado's book. He's a historian of the first and second centuries. And the book is entitled Destroyer of the Gods. And he is writing about the interaction of this small movement that in very unlikely ways across 300 years becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. And he's asking the question, how did that happen? Because there is nothing more unlikely than that story across those 300 years. 
And he looks at the first two centuries in particular as to how the church was established and what made Christianity unique in that world. And one of the things that he points out is that religion in the Roman world, in Roman culture, was primarily about certain ceremonial obligations. And so you participated in the ceremonial obligations to be a good citizen of your city or perhaps to get a little bit of luck for the next turn in life. That was what religion was about. But religion wasn't particularly connected to your ethical life. That is how you, how you went out and lived. It was just certain things that you did. Made an offering here or there. Ate a meal here or there. And so Hurtado points out that one of the things that was so unique about Christianity it's not that they were showing up and saying, yeah, you've got to do all this stuff in order for God to love you. That wasn't it at all. But they were saying that because God has loved us, we are to yield ourselves to him, and our lives are to take on a certain shape and bent, and we are to reflect him into the world. And this is what was unique about Christianity, and it was coming out of this heritage from the Old Testament because we know that it was not about Abraham here and walking before God and being blameless, this was not a matter of him earning anything from God. We've already seen in chapter 15 that he believed God's promise, and that promise, his faith in that promise, was counted to him as righteousness. And so he had a right standing with God, not because of what he did, but simply because of believing and trusting. And friends, that's the basis of the Christian life. We don't try to impress God with our accolades and our achievements. We don't have to earn our way there. We can't. Our sins are too many. But he forgives us in Jesus when we look at him in faith and when we hold fast to him, believing that he has died in our place, in our stead, and we are now reconciled to God through his sacrifice. It's important to ask this question, though, about what does it really look like to walk before God and to be blameless? And honestly, as I sought to answer that this week, I called several friends and asked the question, if you were preaching this, how would you answer? And it was a bad week. They weren't Job's friends. They didn't give me long, elaborate answers. They said, that's a tough one, Chuck. <laughs> how do you sum that up? But the area I would direct you in is to our Psalm of the day, Psalm 25. It's a beautiful prayer that is often connected to the Psalms of lament and confession of grieving over sin, yielding the self to God. But you, as you look at the shape of it, you'll see some familiar terms. The term covenant actually appears multiple times, and the psalm closes in verse 21, speaking of integrity and uprightness, very similar to these words like blameless. But you'll see where the psalm begins, and this is the life that is oriented to God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's offering the self to God. And friends, this is what a Godward life is. It's just offering ourselves to God in his service. And then you see in verse 4 that he shifts. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. This is just that ability to be supple in front of God and ask God to instruct us and guide us and teach us that we need that. And then in verses 6 and 7, we move more to confession Acknowledging that God blesses the humble and asking God not to remember our sins against us. 
acknowledging our debts before him, asking God to pardon our guilt, we find this theme running through the psalm, a humility. In verse 14, we see there's a profession of faith. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant, this strong assurance that despite all my sins, despite all my failures, God is for me. And then finally, you see that there is this invoking God, this calling upon God. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and inflicted. And friends, this is what the life of those who walk before God, the blameless, this is what it looks like. It involves all of these motions, offering ourselves to God, asking him to teach us, confessing our failures to God, calling upon him for help, professing that we know he's there for us. This is what the godly life is. And this is what we do as those who've had God's claim placed upon us. But finally here, we see that God also fashions a sign for us. If you turn back to Genesis 17, follow in verses 10 through 12. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Sign of circumcision is not the easiest thing to discuss in a public context. It's not one that people particularly like to dwell upon, but there is some help in thinking briefly about it. Obviously, the sign is given here in order to minister to Abraham in the midst of his weakness. And this is why God assigns any sign in the Bible, what we would also call a sacrament. God gives us sacraments to minister to us in our weakness, to give us something visible that represents the promise that directs and points us in and through faith, as we embrace that promise, we walk into those realities. And so Augustine defines the sacrament very helpfully for us, a visible sign of an invisible grace. And due to our weak and wavering nature, God gives us these visible aids, and he gives us those visible aids to support us and to sustain us throughout life. And they perform two important functions for us to reflect on. The first is that the sign or the sacrament always directs us to the promise. The sign of circumcision is graphic. It's engraved upon the instrument of procreation. It's connected to the promise that Abraham was going to have a son from his very own body. And everyone knows the challenges of this. He and his wife were both old. And so how in the world was this going to happen? In fact, Abraham had so much doubted it that he got into a relationship with a servant. And Sarah, his wife, thought that was a good idea. But that wasn't the means of arriving at the promise that God was going to bring from Sarah's dead womb a child, that God was going to work this out, that God was going to bring this to fruition. 
And so the graphic sign of circumcision was to remind Abraham on this instrument of procreation that I am the one who's going to bring this about. Your scheming, your wisdom, the ways that you think you can accomplish this, no. I am the one who will bring this promise. And so the sign reminds us and directs us to the promise of God. And it's also going to summons us to faith, to believe that it is going to be God who brings this about. And friends, baptism is the fulfillment of this old covenant sign. We no longer have a bloody symbol, but a sign that works in very similar ways, reminding us of the washing away of water and the pouring out of the, of the Spirit, the forgiveness of our sins. It directs us to what God's promise is and all that He does for us and summons us to faith. And so this is the first role of the sacrament is it directs us to what God has promised to do. But second, there's also... Another role for the sacrament is that it summons us to a deeper spiritual reality. Because the sign of circumcision didn't just point Abraham to God's promise, but it also summoned him to his own responsibilities in the covenant. The cutting away of the flesh, the removal of the foreskin, symbolized the removal of Abraham's sinful flesh. And you say, what was that sinful flesh? That sinful flesh was all the scheming that we've read about. In chapter 12, when he went back down to Egypt in order to be secure and safe, even though God had said he's going to bless him there in Canaan, what did Abraham do? He retreated, according to his own wisdom, to what he thought would be good. This was a fleshly decision. It was not in accord with God's word. And then in chapter 16, the same thing happens. He joins himself to his servant, trying to bring about the promise of having an heir. He was panicking. I'm going to have no heir. I need to work this out. And so he took matters into his own hands. And friends, this is the flesh that has to be cut away, the distrust in us, in which we don't obey and we don't follow God and we don't listen to him and we don't trust that he's going to make good on what he has said. And circumcision graphically reminds us and points us to this deeper reality that the flesh, our heart of stone, has to be circumcised. It has to be removed. And friends, this is what happens through baptism into Jesus Christ. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 says that Jesus' circumcision was the cross, and we become circumcised with him. And we experience that reality in an ever-growing capacity and way throughout the Christian life, in which we're reminded of this promise and also of our responsibilities. But this is how God relates to us in all of our weakness, all the doubts and the questions that we have as we, like Alexander Selkirk, Rise daily, expectant and hopeful, and have to maintain that tension that we've received promises, but yet they still seem a long ways off. And so how do we sustain that? We listen once again. We reaffirm God's promises to us in Jesus, what he says he's going to make good on. And then we remember our responsibilities that is his claim upon our lives 
how that is then going to direct us and what it means to walk before him and be blameless. And then we allow him to affirm us, to console us in all of our weaknesses, using these visible signs to direct us to him, to direct us to our own responsibilities. We allow him to minister to us in that very gentle and tender way. That's what your God has done for you. Let's ask him for his help to make those effective. Father, we confess that we too are like Abraham. We see all of his weakness, and it is so tempting to judge him for his folly and his unfaithfulness. And yet we would also bring judgment upon ourselves because we too struggle to trust and to believe, to believe that every word that you have spoken you will make good upon And so help us in our unbelief. And may you counsel us, reaffirming all of your promises. May you counsel us, directing us to our obligations and our duties as we follow after you. And may you console us and comfort us to sustain and nurture us through your sacraments. God, minister to us. You are a gentle and gracious Father. You've given all these things to us as a gift. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.